0: On the 26th of November 1942, the British government released a report on social insurance and allied services. Known to history as the Beveridge Report, it laid the foundation for the UK's welfare state. The Beveridge Report was no isolated phenomena. From Lyndon Johnson's Great Society in America to the Godesberg Program in West Germany, social democracy came to define Western politics in the post war period. Since then, social democracy has been left bruised by the neoliberalism of Thatcher and Reagan. Revived by the third way of politicians like Tony Blair and Gerhard Schroeder, only to be challenged once more by the 2008 financial crisis and the rise of populism. Is social democracy destined for the dustbin of history, or will it reinvent itself once again? I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion on politics, international relations and current affairs. Today we will give you the city view on the past, present and future of social democracy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the City Politics Podcast. I'm joined in the virtual studio, as always, by my co-host, Konstantin Vossing. Konstantin, how are you doing?
1: Excellent. How are you doing today?
0: Oh, I'm enjoying the start of term, the lead up to the start of term. Uh, So many things to do, so many people to talk to, so many things to discuss. And uh, we are joined today by Lise Butler, Lecturer in Modern History, Lisa's work focuses on, the, on political history, left-wing politics, and the history of the social sciences. How are you, Lisa?
2: I'm very well, thank you for having me on.
0: Absolute pleasure. Uh, today we're gonna to be discussing social democracy. Uh, this is a topic that has seen a big revival in recent years with people like Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders on both sides of the Atlantic. But given that Boris Johnson is in Downing Street and Donald Trump is in the White House, and the only alternative to him seems to be Joe Biden, we might be asking whether the tide is turning once more against social democracy. But before we get into that, we need to pull out the city crystal ball and ask our guests some questions. But here's the twist, everyone. Normally, the Nostradamus of Northampton Square, Constantine will ask the questions. But today, it's going to be me because Constantine is one of our specialists in social democracy. The city crystal ball was an ancient and occult practice. We ask our guests 10 questions on the week's topic. And from their answer, we can divine the future. But they can only answer yes or no. Which, let me tell you, is torture for an academic. So let's jump into the City Crystal Ball. Lise, are you ready for the City Crystal Ball? I am. Constantine, how are you feeling about the City Crystal Ball? Excellent, looking
1: forward to
2: it.
0: OK. So our first question is, in 20 years, will we still have viable social democratic parties? Lise, what do you think?
2: Uh, Yes, I think so. But I think that they'll look very different than they do today.
0: Uh, Constantine. Yes. Second question. Was the success of social democracy in the mid 20th century due to the threat of Soviet style communism?
2: I think that certainly the threat of Soviet style communism pushed policymakers to be more acquiescent and more willing to embrace um, what we now see as social democratic policies uh, and political configurations.
0: So is that a yes? Yeah, it's a yes. Constantine. No. Oh. Will the Labour Party in the UK take intellectual leadership of the global social democratic movement as it did in the 1990s?
2: I'm not sure I accept the premise of that question. I'm not convinced that the Labour Party did take intellectual leadership of the global social democratic movement in the 1990s. I'm not sure that the British Labour Party has ever necessarily been a global leader in terms of social democracy, though it's certainly been an important player. So... I I guess the answer is is no, but broadly, I'm I'm just not sure I accept the premise.
0: Okay. Constantine? Yes. In an imaginary future without social democratic parties, would we be missing something in our political discourse? Massively. So that's a yes. Yes. (laughs) Constantine? Yes. In the future, will social democratic parties cooperate more with the unions?
2: That will depend on the future of the of, of unions and whether unions are able to effectively reconfigure themselves in order to face the sort of political sociological realities of, of the present. I think it would be very difficult to imagine an effective social democracy that didn't involve serious collaboration and, and unions in a central role. But the way things are looking, it's not terribly optimistic. So that's a no. I think that's a no. Yeah.
0: Okay. Constantine. No. Will social democracy become more populist in the future?
2: I think politics will become more populist, but I'm not convinced that social democracy will become more populist.
0: That's a no. Constantine? No. Can social democracy flourish in the gig economy?
2: I think it can, but I think it requires a lot of political will and a lot of serious strategic efforts to make that happen.
0: Constantine? Yes. Will social democratics still be the parties of work and welfare in 20 years? Yes. Constantine? Yes. Will social democratic parties still have true policy experts in their ranks in, in 20 years' time?
2: Yes. But I'm not really sure what you mean by policy experts.
0: We'll get into that. <laughs> Constantine, what do you think? Yes. And finally, in 20 years, will social democratic parties have organizations that differ from what they have today? in terms of how they develop policy, acquire expertise, do campaigning, and communications, and so
2: on. Yes, absolutely. Social Democratic parties are constantly changing their policy structures, and I think they will continue to do so.
0: Constantine? Yes. The Crystal Ball has produced a broad consensus, but some interesting points of divergence. However, before we start talking about social democracy, perhaps we need to, I don't know, unpack it a little bit because our listeners might be a little bit like me, and familiar with the term of social democracy, but not sure exactly what it means. So Lise, Constantine, can you do me a favor and explain social democracy like I'm five?
2: So social democracy is tricky to define. I mean, I have a whole lecture on it, but even with that, I think it's difficult to pin it down to um, a five-year-old. But broadly speaking, I would say that in the 19th century, we see, of course, the emergence of uh, Marxist social movements, and then in response to that, we see a reaction commonly associated with thinkers like Edward Bernstein, which basically fundamentally questioned the premises of Marxism and suggested that revolution would not occur and that capitalism did not look the way Marx thought it would, and therefore argued that people who wanted to do social change and who wanted to advocate for a uh, better life for the working class, um, needed to focus much more on reformist and progressive social change rather than on radical or revolutionary strategies. I see social democracy as a political settlement rooted in having a large organized working class pushing for a more reformist state that um, seeks to use policy to try and improve the lives of the people living in it, and rooted in um, broadly a set of sort of progressive social values so that's a that's a broad definition and it might actually be a tricky one for a five-year-old to grapple with um but let's anticipate a very very bright five-year-old who also has a good understanding of marxism and that would be my definition
0: but most most five-year-olds are aware of the kautsky bernstein controversies of the early 20th century i mean they, they do that on sesame street all the time constantine do you have uh do you have anything to add to uh, educating a five-year-old about social democracy
1: all right. So if we think about, um, you know, politics uh, in, as something that tries to accomplish two things, then it would be political rights and uh, social rights, uh, and this is in a sense what different political movements have tried, well, since the beginning of uh, humanity, but especially since. Uh, the beginning and mid nineteenth century what we refer to and think of as sort of the modern era uh, modern mass politics so social democracy uh, is a political movement that was not content with what liberals and conservatives thought uh, in the nineteenth century to be political rights are fine and it's also fine if they are only there for some people uh, so it's okay, voting is great and everything, and you know deciding over your leaders. For some people you know that's all we need really to call ourselves democracy so now enter social democracy social democracy has, says two things about that first of all no political rights need to be for everyone not just for some people but for everyone for workers for peasants for women later on uh, for, uh, for immigrants um, political rights need to be for everyone so that's one thing that distinguishes social democracy from everyone else And then the second thing that distinguishes social democracy from everyone else is that they say, we also need social rights in addition to political rights. Political rights is not enough. We need social rights. And that means that human beings are not just entitled with the right to decide over their own political affairs. They also are entitled to to have access to a minimum of social welfare. And our community is obliged to offer that to them for two reasons. First of all, because well, it's the good life, we all want the good life, uh, and we all should do so in a, in, a, in a way that is fair and equal. But also, and now we're starting at the beginning again, social rights are necessary to make political rights meaningful. People can only really participate in politics if they have at least some leisure to do so, uh, if they have at least some uh, social rights that allow them to spend some of their time to think about politics. So that's social democracy political rights for some is not enough. We need social rights, and we need political rights for everyone.
0: Right, so if I'm uh, getting it sort of clear in my mind, when we, mean social de- when we talk about social democracy, what we mean is a form of perhaps revisionist socialism that focuses on providing the po- political rights and social rights to an industrial working class. Is this what we're talking about here? Or is this a, a reduction?
2: I mean, I think it's, I think it's complicated. Um, I think people use social democracy to refer to economic systems and models which don't presume an industrial working class. But I think one of the problems for social democrats is that very many of the assumptions uh, of social democracy are premised on that industrial organized working class. And I mean, again, it's complicated. So, you know, there's some sense in which people who we would consider to be social Democrats, say people on the left in Britain in the 1970s and 80s, actually rejected the term social democracy because they associated it very much with parliamentary socialism, with organized labor, um, and with a very reformist model of socialist politics, of of progressive politics, um, which they thought was inadequate to grapple with the real challenges that that were facing people at that time. So, I mean, I think we're operating on all kind of, uh, we're all operating on a kind of a general conception of social democracy. Um, And I think it is a broad church, but I I don't think it has a a fixed or or, or clear meaning. And I think it's often very contested.
0: Okay, I think that's fair enough. So now that we kind of understand what we're talking about, let's talk about uh, its revival in recent years does social democracy have something to offer us in this sort of post-financial crisis world? Um, What explains the revival of uh, interest in politicians like Jeremy Corbyn, who have been around for a very long time uh, and have only sort of recently gained traction, and politicians like Bernie Sanders on the other side of the Atlantic, who again, you know, these are long-standing actors in British and American politics, but they've always been fringe actors until relatively recently. Uh, Now we see sort of a strong interest in their politics. So how do we explain this?
2: I think it's pretty clear to me uh, that just the, the the staggering rise in inequality, and uh, which was of course exacerbated by the two thousand and eight financial crisis, really renewed a concern with inequality and also with just the failures of capitalism to deal effectively with uh, with addressing. Uh, inequality in society. I mean I think that a lot of people when Jeremy Corbyn came to power just felt like he was sort of refreshing um, in a sense that he was actually able to speak plainly to some of the struggles that people were were facing. That political message um, didn't end up being adequate but I think that it cut through at a time when people were sort of sick of what they felt was a kind of a reformist political agenda that didn't really speak to what was actually going on um, economically and socially.
1: I think what Lise is saying is, is absolutely important and, and, and true and critical, is that there has, been, there has been a realization in the past, well, maybe 10 years, or you know, maybe even already since the 1990s, um, sort of a, in, the, in the heyday of, of neoliberalism still, that there is obviously something wrong with inequality. There is something wrong with the way in which we generate wealth and distribute resources in our societies, and that there needs to be a better response to that than the, the free market doctrine. I think that is that is very fair to say, and this issue has been exacerbated by the by in, in Europe, but also across the Atlantic by the various crises that sort of made up the late the late zeros and the, the, the early teens of um, of our of our millennium, and our our century. And so, I think those those crises have exacerbated that, and they have created a a a generation that now with Corona has known nothing but the, the sort of the politics as in crisis mode. And I think that has led to uh, a popularity for uh, for generally speaking, social democratic solutions in the widest possible sense. Uh, and I think that is something that we that we are feeling right now. But at the same time, those sort of um, solidarity, some cases also they state fixated solutions. It doesn't have to be that way. It has to be. It was uh, that way for some people, uh, but they come in in, in a wide variety. Uh, of, of forms and shapes, and I think that's where we need to be a bit more, um, pay a bit more attention to what we mean when we talk about social democracy. You were talking about Jeremy Corbyn uh, and Bernie Sanders, and they obviously stand for a very, very specific brand of social democracy, and it is actually one that I would call left populism. And that left populism has actually, in a sense, benefited the most from that resurgence of frustration with capitalism, really. You know the magazines, the Jacobin magazine, uh, the um, the Momentum movement uh, in the in the United Kingdom, the the popularity of Corbyn, at least for a while, and and of Bernie Sanders, uh, they really have become mouthpieces for this sort of this, this this new generation's frustration with capitalism. Now, my opinion is that this, in a sense, left populist frustration with capitalism has to be transformed into uh, a a more pragmatic uh, and a more reformist social democratic response. But it is something that can be built upon.
2: So just to come in on that point, I don't necessarily see, say, Corbyn and Sanders as emblematic of a resurgence of social democracy. I mean, Tony Blair was a social democrat. I don't think many people would actually contest that. What I remember distinctly happening in around 2014, 2015, 2016, was that suddenly socialism was no longer a dirty word. And even before Corbyn came to the fore, people like Ed Miliband were now openly calling themselves socialists, and that became acceptable again. So I think social democracy never really went out of fashion. It was always acceptable. But that has to do with the porousness of social democracy as a category and the ability for really quite reformist, quite centrist, quite pragmatic political actors to fit themselves into that category.
0: Right, so I want to jump in on the populist element of of social democracy that Constantine was mentioning, because both of you agreed that uh, social democracy should not be moving in a populist direction in the future. Uh, but it seems that you know social democratic movements, if we can call sort of uh, Sanders and Corbyn uh, social de- democrats, they have been engaging in populist rhetoric with some success. You know, I mean, we can look at sort of uh, Sanders' movement in the. 2016 election and in the and tw- the lead up to the 2020 election, he got people out onto sort of engaged in politics. The same can be said for Corbyn. So why shouldn't they engage in populism? Is populism and social democracy really antithetical? Or is it just simply a choice in tactics that they shouldn't engage in?
2: I mean, again, I think I'm going to maybe contest or problematize this idea of populism a little bit. I don't think that populism is necessarily synonymous with voter engagement or, you know, with getting people interested and in, in engaged in politics. I mean, I think um, populism, again, has lots of definitions, like all of these things. But I see populism as kind of appealing in kind of a crude way to people's political instincts and often appealing maybe in, in, a less, in a less rational or considered way. I mean, I, I think of populism as um, associated with certain kinds of demagoguery and um, certain kinds of mass political movements, which um, social democrats do tend to try and distance themselves from. So I think that the fact that people have been engaged by the messages associated with the Sanders campaign or the Corbyn campaign, doesn't necessarily make them populist. It just makes them effective to a point.
0: Right. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I really do take that point that, you know, populism tends to, I mean, it's become a derogatory term, right? I mean, uh, it's hard to sort of talk about populism in any objective sense. But in terms of mass engagement, you know, this does seem to be part of the social democratic tradition, right? Uh, You know, if we think about the Labour Party in the UK at its height, we're talking about a mass membership organization uh, that has, you know, seen a big decline over recent years. If we look at the number of people who are part of the Labour Party, or members of the Labour Party in sort of, let's say, a decade ago, uh, we're talking about historically low compared to, say, the 1960s. Sure.
2: The Conservative Party has relatively low membership uh, as a political organization, but I don't think that that would mean that the Conservatives never resort to populism.
0: Oh, no, no, I, I agree. But uh, the Conservatives probably would never describe themselves as Social Democrats either. Well, I mean,
2: well, I, well, maybe, you know, definitely- I mean
0: in the post-war consensus, yeah, you're, you're, there was I'm- a...
2: One of the other questions that I had when we were defining social democracy was whether we were prepared to accept a definition of social democracy as something that could be implemented by right-wing parties. Of course, you know, Bismarck, right? Uh, Conservative uh, parties during the post-war consensus. Um, I don't know, maybe Angela Merkel fits into this, although um, that's maybe a bit more complex. But, you know, I mean, are are we necessarily talking about something that is espoused by left parties or is this a more, a broader definition?
0: Yeah, I think that that's a great point. I mean, when we talk about social democracy, I mean, my mind automatically goes to left wing politics, right? I mean, this is sort of, I think, probably what a lot of our listeners think, too. You think social Democrat, you know, you think the right version of that would be Tony Blair and the left version of that would be Jeremy Corbyn. But, you know, some of the biggest uh, social policies implemented in Western democracies over the past seven years did not come from uh, left wing parties. They came from parties like the Conservative Party in this country or the uh, Christian Democrats in Germany. Uh, So yeah, perhaps uh, the left wing does not have a monopoly on social democracy.
1: Yeah, let me jump in on the populism discussion. I think that's a very, very critical issue because in my mind, uh, distinguishing uh, sort of social democracy and where it should be going from populist options, I think that's one of the key decisions that social democratic parties will have to engage in. And by that, I don't mean to say that I want to sort of um, withhold the social democracy label from Jamie Corbin and Bernie Sanders. In my mind, they certainly fall within sort of, as you said, David. They, they certainly fall within the range of what I would call social democratic politicians. Um, you know, the, and, on the left uh, end of that, so to speak. But I think uh, they also stand for something. And this is not a question of left or right. They stand for a an approach to politics that is populist in a more narrow kind of sense. So, what what do I mean by that? I, I, I mean by that that sometimes we speak of populism and we mean politicians that, you know, that have very well, they, they, they're popular, they try to be popular, they try to speak the language of the people. But I, that's not really what I have in mind when I when I use the term populism. I'm thinking of a very unique kind of approach to, the, to communicate politics and also to, to think of policy agendas uh, and relate uh, to people and to see democracy, really. And from that point of view, populism—the way political scientists uh, think of it—in sort of empirical political science research, they think of it uh, uh, as something that is um, that, that uses anti-elite and anti-expertise kind of rhetoric. You know, that is critical of of traditional sort of channels of how expertise is produced and judged. On the one hand, and on the other hand. It is very critical of the elite, those people that have failed us through these 10 or 15 years of consecutive crises. You know, why are we in these crises? It's because of those bad elites that have run the show for us and that have miserably failed us. And then the populists say that they are the only sort of solution to those problems and they are representing the interests of the people and just simply by virtue of, you know, representing the interests of the people and being the people, uh, which obviously is, is not not necessarily true, but simply by that virtue they are—they're doing they are uh, they're doing, us, uh, uh, they're doing a better political service to us than those experts who supposedly know better but who have failed us anyway. So populism entails this very, very strong anti-elite and anti-expertise notion, and that's more than just sort of being a sort of a kind of a populist politician in—in in, uh, you know uh, in trying to you know communicate in intelligible, maybe sometimes even simplistic manner. It's more than that. So what I'm trying to say is, social democratic parties should do everything that they can to talk to people in a way that is intelligible. You know, they should not be too complicated. They should uh, also use straightforward rhetoric. Uh, they should make good arguments and they should think a lot about how they communicate their ideas, much more than they used to be in the past. And if you think of populism along that line, and it's not populism in my mind, but that would, that's a good thing. But I think, and this is I want to be really clear uh, uh, on, I think that social democratic parties should not fall into the trap of becoming populists just because some of the populist style in politics has been so successful, at least with some voters and with, uh, uh, with some generations in the past decade or so. I think that... Would undermine the core of what it means to be social democratic. And I think it would be electorally extremely harmful for social democracies to try to copy populist styles of politics.
0: It sounds like social democrats have a marketing problem when trying to connect to their voters, but this raises the question of what exactly it is they're trying to sell. When I think about social democracy, I think of some pretty monumental programs, things like the NHS or Medicaid, or if we extend the big tent of social democracy to include Blair, uh, something like The Third Way. So what is it that social democrats are selling in the 21st century? What's the message?
2: I mean, I consider social democracy to be defined by a simple conviction um, that the market will not adequately provide for the needs of everyone in society and that one way or another um, society needs to be organized and that policymakers need to organize themselves around dealing with that basic fact perhaps that's the definition I should have given to a five year old but and and then the means by which you address that or are, are more contested so within the British left there are endless debates about whether you must address that through nationalizing the means of production or through a large element of state control over um, the economy or whether there's other ways to address that whether you can deal with it more locally through forms of municipal socialism or through forms of voluntary organization or um, through market-based solutions right but broadly speaking that's the tagline that i would associate with social democracy and i think that's you know that's its usp that's the one marketing pitch that i think it has to offer
1: and, and con- connecting that to to the the point that i previously made about uh, populism uh i, I think uh, this is absolutely right on the mark um by you know by and this is really in fact a good good definition of democracy uh, we need to regulate markets in order to, you know, distribute resources and, and economic well-being in a way that uh, that is beneficial uh, to, uh, to to the vast majority of people, really, to everyone at the end of the day, uh, as, an ideal, uh, as an ideal typical goal. Uh, and in order to do that, we need social democratic solutions. And they are always based on the notion of collective control in one way or another. And as we said, you know, this can be very state-based. It can be very rigid That the the at the national level, or this can be at the local level. And there's different policies that accomplish that, but it is guided by that idea. Now, on top of that, combining that sort of with what I said previously about non-populism, I think these solutions also need to be based on scientific expertise. They need to be based on a non-populist understanding of politics. They need to be based on extensive communication and extensive negotiations they need to be open to compromise they need to uh, involve uh, uh, processes that are quite complicated uh, and they need to shy away from supposedly easy solutions because that is what i associate with the left populist a variant of social democracy or the left populism as being separate from democracy however you want you want to look at that it is the belief that you just need this we need this one revolutionary moment, whether it's an actual insurrection in the late 19th century or whether right now in the United States it's single payer health insurance or in other countries it's the collectivization of the means of production. It's what I would call this policy fetishism. The idea that there's this one sort of liberating policy, and if we manage to sort of just fight enough for that and if we implement it, all of our problems will be solved. And I think that is, uh, that, is uh, that is too easy as a solution, and it won't work, and social democracy should not try to fall into that trap. So, long story short, regulating the market, uh, coming up especially with new solutions for, uh, a, for a, a, a political economy and society that has been undergoing rapid and quite transformative changes in the past 20 years. David mentioned the gig economy, uh, but to do that in a way um, that uh, recognizes the importance of expertise and negotiation.
2: Constantine, I had no idea you were such a Fabian. Um, and I say that as the former vice chair of the Oxford Fabian Society. I mean, I think what you're articulating is a kind of classically um, a top-down expertise-driven Um, model of of social reform. And I, of course, there is an important role for that to play within any viable social democratic movement. But my argument is that would be that certainly within the the British left tradition, that's always had to be married to social movement-based politics. So the formation of the Labour Party comes out of the marriage of You know, Fabians, the Independent Labour Party, the trade union movement, the Social Democratic Federation, all coming together to create a mass party that represents all of these different things. And I think that um, social democracy as technocratic expertise really cannot work unless you have broader um, structures in workplaces, in social movements to kind of put pressure on policymakers to make sure that changes happen in, in the right way. Um, so I, I really think that these things just all have to be part and, part and parcel.
0: Well, I think that that's a, a really sort of fascinating point on a, sort of the development of social democratic policy. Uh, but I think we should like look... More closely at the gig economy and the problems posed to social democracy in the 21st century. Right. So there's two things that I would highlight uh, that distinguish the way that the economy is organized in the 21st century versus, say, uh, in the period immediately after the Second World War. One is globalization and uh, sort of the movement of sort of economic productivity outside of national contexts, and the other is the development of things like platform capitalism which have sort of radically changed the way that people relate to their work. You know, we have people who are sort of employees who are not employees. Take uh, your Uber drivers, people who work for Deliveroo. Uh, These are people who, you know, would be considered working class, but their relationship with their employers are fundamentally different than people who worked in a large Fordist-style factory in 19, say, 55. Can social democracy deal with these pretty fundamental changes in the way that we organize our
2: uh, economic life? I mean yes i think that uh that is that is the central challenge to social democracy i would also say that social democracy has been challenged by changes in the nature of work for a very 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 long time so again um in the british context you know social democrats have for a very long time been grappling with what do you do with a declining manual working class um so this this um huge debates about affluence in the 1950s and 60s. In the 1970s and 80s, you get an increasing focus on community politics, on municipal socialism, on on trying to organize through sort of social movements. And you know so these are not new questions they're per- perhaps particularly severe questions right now and it's certainly not made easier by the fact that in places like the UK and the United States there's a lot of laws which you know inhibit meaningful trade union organization that make it very very hard for organizations to strike meaningfully to take effective industrial action and Basically, I think, you know, the future of social democracy rests on whether, these, um, whether the gig economy can or- organize itself to address these things and to create a, a meaningful model of um, political pressure today.
1: Absolutely. You put these two together, then, then that's, in a sense, what, uh, you know, what, 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 what I, I would also go for. Yes, knowledge, production, expertise are key. And I think this is just, as a political debate, this is such an important thing to emphasize right now in response to those uh, populist, that populist focus on, you know, us versus the elite and, you know, those experts have failed us anyway. So, yes, the knowledge production expertise are key, but not top-down. And I think that's exactly the point where I would say, no, I'm not trying to be that kind of Fabian, not at all, because I think that if we've learned one thing is, um, and this is because of the digital revolution, this is because of transnationalism, this is because of All of the things that we've learned from the failures of bureaucracy, I don't foresee and I don't envision social democracy being that huge knowledge and political machine, technocratic bureaucracy that makes all of these policy ideas just like it did and then turns them out and then puts them on the market. No, social democracy needs to be more like a, a sponge, you know, that sucks in all of this knowledge from everywhere and that uses it in a much more sort of innovative and organic fashion that takes in and the sponge needs to go everywhere and, and suck in knowledge from everywhere uh, and have a, be much less like a bureaucracy. So if you put these two pieces together, anti-populism, yes to expertise, plus different ways of creating activities, more openness, less bureaucracy, I think then we're really getting somewhere.
0: I think one of the sort of interesting questions that comes up now though is, uh, can we have social democracy uh, Without the state, you know, most people when they think of social democracy, they would associate with big state interventions, you know, the NHS, uh, or say, you know, the New Deal in the states, these are sort of monumental interventions into the economy, they require large bureaucracies. uh, And there seems to be sort of at least what, you know, I've been hearing from from both of you today, is that there is sort of alternatives within the social democratic tradition that don't rely on big state solutions. Uh, I wonder if we want to talk a little bit about that.
2: Absolutely. I mean, within the British left tradition, there are, um, there's been lots of I would say, state-critical variants of socialism. So my book is on a guy called Michael Young, who was um, very critical of the, not necessarily of the existence of the welfare state, but of the ways in which state bureaucracy and uh, things like housing and other forms of state service provision occurred. And he argued that there needed to be a lot more room for um, familial networks, um, community networks, basically for people to take things into their own hands and that the state should actually facilitate that. Now, I'm not necessarily endorsing that view. Um, he had a lot of blind spots specifically around gender and the ways in which when you have unpaid care work that's supplementing the state, it tends to fall on, on women and other people who perform, who perform care work. But within the left tradition, you know this, this goes all the way back to William Morris, in the 19th century. Um, there's also, of course, an anarchist strain, people like Colin Ward, and and even the municipal socialism associated with people like Ken Livingston and um, even Jeremy Corbyn in the 1970s and 80s contained a strong conviction that socialism could often be better managed in smaller organizational units rather than say through a big large unit like the top-down state. That said, it's very, very, very hard to do this without the state altogether. And there's a few examples that spring to mind here where, say, people associated with, you know, the tech community in Silicon Valley have tried things like basic income proposals, um, which have been funded by particular philanthropists or particular private organizations, and have tried to kind of create mini welfare states and fiefdoms effectively uh, within within their own uh, domain. And I I think that that's closer to feudalism than it is to to, to any kind of model of a welfare state or anything we would call social democratic. And to me, the the central, you know, you can't have social democracy without having citizenship, right? And so far, The state is the only mechanism we have for creating accountability to people, not as consumers, not as uh, beneficiaries of charity, but as citizens who, uh, who have a say in their own livelihood. So, you know, I think that there's ways that we can critique the way in which the state delivers on its social democratic principles. But whether we can do this without the state altogether is a much, much, much trickier question.
0: Yeah, I'm very sympathetic to that. I mean, the idea that we can have sort of our rights secured through the benevolence of a private actor, you know, whether it's Bill Gates or sort of uh, a religious organization, has always seemed to me sort of completely absurd. Uh, if you're at the goodwill of someone, then you're completely in their power in a way that is, you know, irreconcilable with holding rights uh, from a fundamental point of view. It speaks nicely do another way of looking at this
1: um so another way of looking at this that sort of is complementary is to think of social democracy and that's why it is also i think uh, sometimes messy and sometimes you know has a hard time convincing people because it's more difficult to explain this social democrats uh, are about sort of they've tried to reconcile two different goals um, and this has a lot to do with the question of sort of local solutions and state-based solutions or generally the kinds of solutions policy solutions that you that you envision And one of these goals is to liberate the individual, to liberate the individual, let people do as they please, to let them live their lives and to give them all that they need to live their lives freely and happily. And on the other hand, to engage in efficient steering at the macro level. And this conflict between the micro and the micro level, there's easy easy answers to that. Uh, Sort of the hardcore libertarianism would say, well, we don't need efficient steering, the market will provide. Liberate the individual and thereby a sort of efficient steering will come from that. State socialism. So the perversion of um, of social democracy and communism. State socialism um, would say we need efficient steering uh, and sort of the individual will be liberated or not and we'll forget about that. That's not really it doesn't be, it's not a relevant issue there anymore. So what social democracy does is to say it tries to reconcile these two things and it realizes that it is a difficult thing to do and that it is not always, uh, it doesn't always have the perfect solution for that. But in that mind, it is defined by an openness toward the, the kinds of specific techniques and policies um, that, uh, it needs to, that it needs to implement in order to allow for the best combination of efficient steering at the macro level and the liberation of the individual at the micro level. And right now, as far as the current era in which we are is concerned, I think that the key for social democracy is, in this respect, to realize and to treat digitalization as an ally in that, rather than as as a foe. Digitalization can be a great ally in allowing just that, the combination of efficient steering at the macro level and the liberation of the individual at at the same time. But that is only going to be possible if we create solutions that are open source based that are collective that are regulated that are for the benefit of the many rather than for the benefit of the very very few sometimes even when these very very few give themselves sort of the impression of being philanthropists and sort of and they might even be good people i'm not saying they're bad people that's what david is saying as well these are not necessarily bad people but they will create solutions that are not Uh, going to be uh, efficient, neither going to be efficient, nor are they going to be liberating the the individual. And that's what social democracy needs to do in general, and specifically in our era, look at digitalization as a friend rather than a foe.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the digital sort of uh, digital political spaces are sort of a place where we do need to have a lot more focus on. And the one thing that I've been struck over recent months as I I read that the number of people who are members of QAnon groups on Facebook, and QAnon, of course, is the conspiracy theory that says that Donald Trump is fighting a cabal of democratic pedophiles to liberate America, has grown from 60,000 people before COVID to 2 million people now. And this shows that you know leaving the digital spaces of politics uncontested carries with it a great deal of danger, right? I mean, we can't simply be focusing on sort of traditional spaces for political organization like political parties or unions, uh, there are platforms out there that are sort of becoming increasingly dangerous and increasingly more prone to conspiracism, uh, which you know, undermines democracy, right? If people aren't able to engage with reality, they can't be particularly good citizens, I don't think. Um, Plus, you
1: use digitalization also in, in the way in which you organize work, in the way in which you organize the economy, so it has that political and that economic uh, function too. And in both ways, I think social democracy needs to embrace it.
2: You know, I think there was a lot more optimism about the emancipatory potential of uh, digital technology for more democratic organization um, a few years ago. You know, I think that people have become a lot more cynical about the implications and not only in terms of, um, you know, say spreading conspiracy theories like David's talking about um, but just simply the kind of political economy analysis of this, which is that while you know even even if digital technology uh, can liberate certain kinds of models of forms of political expression. You know, we live in a world of platform capitalism where there's been this incredibly disproportionate uh, share of wealth going towards incredibly wealthy people who, who own those platforms. And the left, I don't think, has managed to um, effectively grapple with that. They've, they've diagnosed the problem, but they haven't got a meaningful um, model of political organization to challenge it yet. But another, another point on this, and here we're coming back to these questions of populism, social democratic movements have never naively thought that that people would do what they wanted them to do or that citizenship was something you could take for granted or that people would always make the right political decisions. Um, and I think this is arguably why, say, in the mid-20th century in Britain, there's so much emphasis on, you know, funding things like the BBC and, you know, making sure that universities are able to expand and making sure that people have access to education and, and, and to higher education. You know, there is a project of sort of mass democratic citizenship building. And of course, there's lots of very valid critiques that that's quite a paternalistic project and that that's rooted in a certain set of elite um, assumptions, about what citizenship should look like. But I I just think it's important to say that no one has ever thought that that functional social democracy came without work, you know, and came without struggle.
0: And that brought our conversation about the past, present and future of social democracy to a close. I'd like to thank Lise Butler for being our guest today. If you're interested in social democracy, you need to pick up her book, Michael Young, Social Science and the British Left, 1945-1970. to 1970. You might also want to check out Renewal, a journal of social democracy where Lise is a contributing editor. Speaking of renewal, our very own Constantine Vossing has a new article coming out with them in their next issue. And his book, How Leaders Mobilize Workers... Social Democracy, Revolution, and Moderate Syndicalism has recently been released in paperback. And if you feel like helping me live my dream of being a social media influencer, you can follow me on Twitter at GD Blunt. Thank you for listening to the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. Follow us on Twitter at The City Politics. And if you want to drop us a line, get in touch via our email, cpp at city.ac.uk. And you know it would be super great, guys? If you could remember to give us a like, write a review, or casually recommend us to every single human being you meet every day of the week. Every. Single. One. Take care, everyone. A big thanks to Cambo for the music, and to our producer, Atina Dimitrova.